lifetimes of listening. When I think back to my childhood, I always know that there was music happening in the background. So I grew up with acoustic music all the time. Yeah, I, I fell in love with him through his music. And there was one tune in particular really hit me hard. When I saw that and I heard how she talked about music, that's when I knew, yep, I want to do that. Lifetimes of Listening. Welcome to Lifetimes of Listening. Uh, this is a, a podcast that seeks to understand why music is so important in people's lives. And today we're really excited to share our conversation about musical memories uh, with a person whose memories of music have themselves created a memoir and a soon-to-be-released documentary as well. Our guest is Chris O'Dell, and her work in the music industry at the end of the 1960s and into the 1970s was as a person whose job enabled so many concerts and recordings. And uh, you, one way of looking at it is that Chris O'Dell was one of the people behind the scenes that really facilitated musical memories for the rest of us who were into all that music of that era. Uh, Brian, tell me a little bit about how you got to know or when you first met our guest, Chris O'Dell. I met Chris O'Dell about 15 years ago after reading her memoir, and I reached out to her because she lived in Tucson, and I was blown away by how gracious she was to share her stories, to give time. Um, she came and spoke first to one of my classes. Uh, later, she spoke to another class. Eventually, her son ended up taking one of my classes, and she came back. And so she's um, shared her uh, time and with stories with with students at the University of Arizona. And um, I, I don't think that everybody that writes a book is just willing to, <laughs> to do that. And so I was right, very right. grateful. Well, I got to meet Chris O'Dell briefly about 10 years ago when I was teaching a, a course in rock and pop music, and you introduced her to me, and she spoke in my class, as a matter of fact. So let me let me tell our audience a little bit more about today's guest. Well, our guest today on Lifetimes of Listening will be a Chris O'Dell. Now, Chris worked for Apple Records during the last years before the Beatles broke up. She also was a personal assistant for the Rolling Stones, and get this, a tour manager for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Linda Ronstadt, Santana, Phil Collins, Earth, Wind & Fire, Fleetwood Mac, Queen, Electric Light Orchestra, Jennifer Warnes, and many others. Just an amazing career. You can read about Chris's experience in her memoir, which is titled Miss Odell, My Hard Days and Long Nights with the Beatles, the Stones, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, and the Women They Loved. And you'll be meeting Chris Odell, our guest on today's episode of Lifetimes of Listening, right after this break. Stay with us. Chris O'Dell, uh, welcome to Lifetimes of Listening. Thank you. Happy it's, to be here. It's really great to have you. Brian Moon and I have been very much looking forward to having you reflect on some musical memories that we've gathered from people we've spoken with over the last couple of years, I guess. And uh, uh, Brian, why don't you get things started with Chris? I, I am curious to ask you this. Uh, after you worked in the music business, you had a second career. And I'm just curious, when you bump into somebody nowadays, what do you, you know, if they... If, 
so what did you do? What do you say? Well, I was a therapist or I worked at the, you know, what, how do you, how do you introduce yourself these days? That's a really good question. And I think that at this particular moment, because there's such a focus on Beatles and on that whole period of time, uh, you know, I will tell that story probably first, but prior to get back, um, before that came out, I, People would say, what were you do? Oh, I was a counselor. I was a therapist. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't go back into that. It was complicated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did your listening change from your time before and after working in the music industry? Or do you, do you think about when you, hear a, when you hear a song nowadays, do you think about it differently now than you did way back when or across? Well, you know, I went through a period where I didn't listen to music at all. And I think, and looking back on it, because now I do, but I typically listen to Motown, which was um, R&B, which is what I kind of grew up on before the Beatles came. The the music, like from the different shows, like Sirius, The Bridge, every song almost has such a memory for me that it's almost too emotionally overwhelming. So I tend to, I mean, because it's hard to listen to any of those songs without going back to some kind of memory. Mm. You know, our podcast and this whole project is about people's musical memories, Chris. Is there a particular musical memory in your life that if I were to ask you, just name one, some memory associated with music, and there must be hundreds of them, right? But would anything stand out for you that you could share with us? Well, I, I suppose, I mean, I could go to 100,000 places from here, really. Um, but the first thing that comes to my mind is the first time I heard, I want to hold your hand. <laughs> it was sure. life-changing, me. not for just me, but for millions of people. And it, as I said, I was Smokey Robinson. I was listening to, you know, all of the Motown stuff. And suddenly it's like, I want to hold your hand. It was so... Sweet. <laughs> I'm just naive. curious. Was it was it was it that you heard it on the radio or that you saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show? I did see them on the Ed Sullivan show, but I think prior to that, it was on the radio, okay. and uh, it was just different. Yeah, as yeah. we all know. Yeah, there's a whole. <clears throat> you know, when I've taught the course in pop and and rock music that I've done uh, under uh, Brian's uh, auspices, so to speak, at the University of Arizona School of Music. Just the story of how the Beatles came to arrive in America after all the stuff happening overseas, and then they're they're making it here, and their music's popular, but we've never seen them in person. And they come, and they show up in the Ed Sullivan thing, and it's just a, you know, millions of people would point to that that era as a life-changing moment in their relationship to music because of the Beatles and how they arrived and the, and the splash that they made on the pop music scene here. Yeah. I think it's just what we needed yeah. at that time. Well, and, and I often point out, and as I think I have to you, what's one reason we needed that? It was three months post-JFK assassination, okay? The, the, the mood of America was pretty morose, you know, a difficult time. And this thing with the Beatles happens a few months later. I've always felt that that was a pivotal part of, of what made that such a, such a special time yeah, in our history. That's yeah. absolutely true. In fact, we cover that in my, in my documentary. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, you're not supposed to know that. That's supposed to come out. <laughs> oh, yeah. what, can you, while we're talking about it, can you tell us a little bit? Because this will air, I believe, just before your documentary comes out. So can you tell us uh, a little about that and where we might find it when it does come out? Well, I'm not sure yet when, uh, where, but it will be streamed. There's no doubt about that. 
Um, I just had these people approach me at a Beetle Fest last, last year and asked me if I would be willing to do a documentary. And I was like, why? You know? oh, well, have you read your book? It's great. Yeah, so well, that's why. Well, so I guess that's what did it. And um, so we went, they flew us, uh, well, the producer is actually English. So we, I flew to London in January and we did, a, it was around the time of the Beatles roof concert anniversary. So that was the reason for January. And um, it really was just going back and talking to people at Apple, or that were were related somehow to Apple at that time, and then we did drift off into other things that I had done in conversation. But a lot of it is is much is very focused on London. Your memoir manages to make the the stars, the rock, the celebrities human, make them feel like real people in a way that. And I love that about that. It's one of the reasons that I like your memoir. Of of all the memoirs about time in the 60s and 70s, I, I enjoy yours a little more than most because it feels like people talking about people. It feels real life in a way that, so that even though, you know, it's Paul McCartney and, and George Harrison, it still feels very approachable almost in a way that, I know I, I would be a bumbling fool if uh, but Paul, Paul McCartney was recently on on campus for uh, Linda McCartney's ex- exhibition, photo ex- exhibition, and um, and left, you know, a whole slew of administrators dumb, like b- tripping over themselves because they couldn't form a sentence, <laughs> you know, and, exactly. uh, and I know that would be my response in real life. But in, in reading this, these stories in your memoir, they really did feel very natural. So this idea well, that you... thank you. For one, I mean, first of all, thank you so much, because they were. <laughs> and it's good that's how it comes across, because it means that that I did what I wanted to do. <laughs> I, I succeeded. Thank you. So we're going to share with Chris today several musical memories that we've gathered from people we've spoken with over the last couple of years. And I think... Uh, the first of those, uh, Brian's going to introduce, and then he'll play it for us, and we'll let you reflect on it a little bit with us. So the first story is um, a story from Ashley Kahn, who is a music critic and journalist and um, was a, a tour manager for a lot of bands in the in the 80s and 90s, and now is an NYU pr- professor. And um, he has this really powerful story about... Um, the importance of the Beatles in his life. And so let me share it with you now. My name is Ashley Kahn. I'm a music journalist, historian, author of uh, various books on music, primarily popular American music uh, with a focus on such styles as jazz, R&B, and rock. I dabble in hip-hop and and more current forms uh, of music, especially in my educator role at New York University, where I teach at the Clive Davids uh, Institute for Recorded Music. I come from a broken family, and uh, my mother, who's, uh, God rest her soul, is not with us anymore, she had a long lifetime challenge with mental issues, mental uh, illness. And it's it's uh, unfortunately fed into the um, 
uh, divorce between my mother and father. I didn't realize what was going on because I was only about five or six when this was happening. I was born in 1960. In 67, I remember we were in this kind of townhouse and above us was another family that lived um, in the, this very compacted kind of uh, living arrangement uh, that called the Foliettas. And they had a teenage daughter uh, who was really into the Beatles. And I remember when she would babysit, she would bring along their latest album, which of course, you know, was Sgt. Pepper's. And I just remember listening, you know, she would track it, you know, tune by tune, play it in the house. And there was one tune in particular that I just remembered really hit me hard and made me want to cry all the time. But the tune, um, She's Leaving Home, hit me so hard every time. I I just remember kind of like hesitating and, and getting ready for this tune to come on because it kind of scared me, the, the emotional intensity of this tune. It was about a woman leaving home because she felt so desperately unloved and unconnected, disconnected, you know, from her parents. To this day, I can't hear that tune and not think about my parents' divorce, the fact that it was my mother leaving and she would never be my, basically, I would never live with my mother full time again. I would spend time with her. But given her um, illness and her institutionalization, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And, but that piece of music will forever connect me to this one very, very harsh kind of life-defining moment when my parents were splitting up. Wow. That is beautiful. Um, it, it almost makes me want to cry because that is the way that song is anyway. And, and it, it makes me, first of all, think that I remember that both Paul and John lost their mothers when they were young. So I, I hadn't really put that thought, thought ever together, but that was the first thing that came up. But I also realized he was pretty young. But I, I know that music is what helps us as we're growing up and we don't know what our emotions are. We don't understand them. We can't say, oh, I feel sad because we don't know what that means. So music can bring that feeling out. We still may not have a word for it. And so the sadness that I hear there, the pain, uh, the loss is so evident in that story. Yeah, uh, well, a couple of things impressed me about it. That's the first time I've listened to Ashley's story, Brian. It was really, it's very moving. One is just the kind of the coincidental occurrence of this song at the same period of time as this period in Ashley Kahn's life, right? His situation with his mom and the song happened to be in his life at the same time, connected in a special way, and I'm guessing have helped him to would it resonate with that memory or deal with that in some in some very powerful way uh the other thing that uh that impresses me about it is is that uh i heard a story on npr just yesterday which i've read articles this about this same topic and that is why do we love so much listening to sad music why does listening to sad music feel so good uh it's because it helps us to process difficult emotions and i found that in many cases, you know, things happen in your life, deaths, separations, transitions that, are, that can be difficult, 
particular piece of music, and especially so in Ashley's case here, shows up at the right time and helps one to process those sorts of feelings and memories. I'm not a psychotherapist or anything like that, but I can see the power of music in help, helping people, like in his story, and a few cases uh, in my life as well. And, and it's, uh, that's why we like sad songs. They help us through sad and difficult things in our lives, yeah. You know, my dad always listened to country music when I was growing up, and there is nothing sadder than country music. <laughs> so yeah. I grew up with all of that. Um, when I worked at, at uh, Cottonwood de Tucson, the treatment center, I had a group of young adults, which was anything I think at that point had to be over 20, 18 maybe. And they took away, this was just a rule then, they took away all their music and phones and any electrical equipment. And it occurred to me, they need music. And so we started a music group for them. And it was so interesting how much it changed where, where they were at yeah. at that point. Just throwing that in. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful story. Shall, shall we move on to number two? Chris, uh, musical memory number two uh, is a story that we got from a woman who works on the University of Arizona campus, Chelsea Farrar. She works at the uh, U of A uh, Art Gallery, Art Museum. And she shares um, the importance of music in her family when she was a child and a couple of particular artists and one in particular who then the family has an encounter with this artist in a very unique fashion. Is that a good way of putting it? So, so it's a great story and I, and I love sharing it with you now. This is Chelsea Farrar and her musical memory. So my name is uh, Chelsea Farrar and I am the Curator of Community Engagement here at the UA Museum of Art. And when I think back to my childhood, it's always filled with like sound memories. I always know that there was music happening in the background. You know, Bob Dylan, I, my dad liked to fashion himself as, you know, Bob Dylan 2.0 and think that he could sing like him. And so I, you know, I think back to my childhood and I can still hear him, like his voice singing Shelter from the Storm. Um, so about 20 years ago, um, my mom ha was undergoing like routine surgery and unfortunately aspirated in recovery and so had acute respiratory distress syndrome. You know, you are put in a um, drug-induced coma and then a breathing tube is, is inserted into your lungs. And so she was, you know, one day I knew that she was just having surgery and the next day I was flying home to, to be with her in intensive care. And she also uh, was, you know, a huge music fan you know that's how like she met my father and she also was always listening to music and Bob Dylan was her favorite and so while she was in a coma we had you know CD players remember portable CD players before uh, you know um, other types of portable music devices and so she was you know like I said like in this coma for two weeks and she was constantly listening to music um, either classical or Bob Dylan basically were the, the things that we put on rotation uh, and she you know came through it was a remarkable recovery um, and she later explained to me that she has not a lot of memories of that experience except for a memory of seeing Bob Dylan playing for her in a cloud um, and I was um, taking one of my last painting classes. I was a um, studio painter, and I painted a painting of her in this coma, inspired actually by some of the iconography of this, this room, uh, you know, 17th, 18th century um, 
Catholic icon paintings with Bob Dylan as the you know spirit floating in the in the cloud playing a song for her. and the and the title of the painting is Shelter from the Storm. Oh, well, these are such great stories. Well, first of all, how perfect to see Bob Dylan in a cloud. I mean, that's like I want to have that one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um and and the fact she did remember this, this is the one thing she remembered. I would love to see that painting for one thing. I bet it's absolutely beautiful. And it is proven that I, as people are certainly in medical conditions and also as they're as they're leaving their bodies, that music can help them to kind of move out more more easily. And when my mother passed, we did that. We looked for, my sister and I fought over which music to play for because I wanted to play her music and my sister wanted to play her her favorite kind of music. But it you could see the smile, just even though she was going, there was a smile on her face when the music started. So it's so powerful. Music is probably the one thing along with love that could heal everything. The the thing that I'm finding that is magical about this that we're doing in collecting these stories is to just realize that everyone has this kind of deep connection and story at some point in their life. There there are very few people that are truly amusical and that are truly not touched by it and moved by it. And and um, I, I I was wondering what it's like to be a what it's like to know that you facilitated in some way some of these experiences that people have had either either the live concerts and the and the work that you've done for 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 live performances or um i i uh, in almost every newspaper article about you it's it mentions that one little anecdote in your book about the Nana Hey Hey part at the end of Hey Jude and helping fill out the studio with voices for that. Um, or recently, uh, you you on the, you know, you, uh, the several times you're on the Get Back uh, documentary, but what is, what is it like to know that, you know, you played a role in a lot of, a lot of these kinds of experiences for people in, 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 in a way? Um, well, grateful is the first word that kind of feeling word that comes to me. I feel so grateful that I had the opportunity to, to be involved in so much that was going on that affected so many people of my generation and is still affecting generations. Um, so I feel a lot of gratitude. I don't know how it happened. It literally was magic. If anything, it was kind of magic because what was I doing here in Tucson and then you know, L.A., and then suddenly I'm in London, and I'm 20 years old. I mean, that was pretty magical for the most important musicians in the world. So, but there's also a part of it that I don't think about that too much. I'm kind of removed from it in a way. And part of it was like 50 years ago. So, you know, my life has gone on. but, um, But I think I'm grateful. And as it's coming back, which it is, I feel even it's happy. I feel happy about the fact that I could be involved in a lot of that stuff. I was asking someone the other day how they got their job working for the Stones, and they said, 
well, it's because of you. You did it. And I went, really? I didn't know that. So there are these little connections we all make throughout our lives that help other people. And I happen to be in a place where it was, um, it, it affected more people, probably. Okay. Well, musical memory number three is one that uh, Brian's going to introduce for us. Uh, Brian, tell us what we're going to listen to. So this is a, a colleague of mine, Jamelia Omar, and... Um, she tells a story about music in her family's household and then um, rolls into a musician that I happen to know you. Uh, you were very fundamental in, in some of, of this musician's earliest recordings. And so I'll, I'll let Jamili take over the story from here. Hi, I'm Jamili Omar. I use she, her pronouns, and I have shoulder length curly brown hair. The story that's the foundation of my love of music is that my dad is a guitar player and so I grew up with acoustic music all the time acoustic guitar music all the time he would just get we'd be preparing dinner and he had would have the guitar out and be tuning it or warming up or playing a riff or practicing or uh, and then he would when he had more time he would go and perform at um, coffee shops and uh, got a band together and had a garage band for a while so music acoustic music that's the music I return to I have always said this that I will be as sad when James Taylor passes away that will feel like my dad going because there's that he just is a part of I feel like he's my dad I feel like he's a part of our family because he was present in our household when my dad was present so there's there's a a tying there between this artist I don't know I've seen in concert a few times but I don't know and my dad so I feel I will feel very bereft when James Taylor passes I remember growing up and becoming aware and being able to choose James Taylor for myself so there's that transition right of this is my dad's music to this is my music and this is my music I share with my dad um, so we you know, when James would come out with a new CD, my dad would buy it and send it to us. You know, there's, uh, we went to a concert together and he framed the ticket and, and wrote up the playlist. So it was something then that became something from what he did for us to something that we do together. Sweet Baby James, I mean, the old, old standards for sure. Sweet Baby James. Um, but then some of the new... Um, like Copperline, when that album came out, there were some on there. My relationship to it is to try not to overplay it because there's a way in which it be, just becomes background noise and you lose the sentiment or the feeling of it. So he's on some of my playlists, but not a lot. This line of questioning has made me really think about families and inheritance in terms of music and what we inherit from our from our families, from our parents and our elders. I wish I inherited the tenacity to learn to play the guitar. I didn't. Um, but we have music in my house all the time. And, and I think that's inheritable. I think that's an inheritable, something that I got from that side of the family, was a, a, a love of listening to music. Well, I totally agree with what she's saying. Not, um, well, First of all, I, my dad is the one that turned me on to Elvis Presley. So that, and because he always played music, that was where my interest in music came from. And, and he was very supportive. So I get everything she's saying, that that connection um, 
to your parent, especially a girl to her dad, I think, is a really special connection. And James is perfect. Who else could do it so beautifully as James Taylor? And, well, I don't think he'll be going anywhere very soon, so I think she's okay. <laughs> well, James Taylor is still very active, right, touring and doing yeah. big things in Las Vegas and here and there. And uh, my my kids are big fans of James Taylor. My, my daughter, who's in her mid-40s, sent me a, a text a few weeks ago that he was in L.A., I don't know, Hollywood Bowl or whatever, and she was ex- as excited to see James Taylor as any artist <laughs> that I can think of. And reflecting on what uh, what our musical memory uh, said here, I, I kind of feel the same way. James Taylor has been a constant in my life mm-hmm. since I was... When, when did his... Late 60s, he was on Apple, so that's when his first... Yeah, so ever since then, James Taylor has been in my life, and I listen to his music all the time. I've seen him in concert a couple of times. And he does have an intergenerational quality that's that's really wonderful. And also, um, our speaker's uh, uh, reflection on the importance of living in a family that listens to lots of music. Mm-hmm. I can say that. Now, none of my other family members, my two brothers or mom or dad, were fans of James Taylor. But mom and dad listened to the stuff from the 40s. My oldest brother, who's 10 years older, listened to the stuff, the R&B transition into rock and roll early 50s. The other brother listened to what became popular folk music in the early 60s, and I reached 16 in 1968. So I've got this three or four decades worth of listening to music, and music was always in it on our household, but everybody had their own era that they listened to. So I feel like I inherited something from my family as well. It's, it's, I feel fortunate in that regard. It's, it's rich. It's very rich to inherit that, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, yeah. And James, I think, I, you know, I've often been surprised. I wouldn't have said 50-some years ago, James is going to be around forever. I, I just would have never thought that. And if you think about it, he has really maintained his position in music for a long, long time. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have put my money on it back then. Not that I didn't think it was great, but... And I, I highly recommend getting Chris's book and reading about, uh, I believe, his first trip to London when he was about to set out on his recording career in Apple Records. And so with we'll leave that as a teaser so that people <laughs> okay. have something to go, it's go do because it's a read. wonderful story. Yes. <laughs> that book, that but, story is worth yeah, worth yeah. to read. Yeah. And uh, just to close out here, <clears throat> again, your your book, which sounds magnificent, the upcoming documentary about your experiences in the world that you said is coming out sometime in the fall of 2023. Actually, more like in the uh, beginning of next year somewhere is what we're aiming well, for. Well, we'll look forward to that as well. It's called Miss Odell. Miss Odell. Mm-hmm. Like, well like the George Harrison it. song. Like yes. the George. I actually had a woman... At sleep number, I called the sleep number number, and she said, what's your email? And I told her, and she went, that's funny. George Harrison's got this uh, one by that name, too. <laughs> A song by that name. And I said, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Miss Odell, Chris Odell, we thank you so very much for coming today and being a part of our uh, Lifetimes of Listening podcast. It's been wonderful hearing you reflect not only on the wonderful musical experiences you've had, but some of your reflections on other experiences that people have shared with us. So Chris, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you both very much.
thank you for being with us on Lifetimes of Listening. If you've not done so already, please follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. We hope you'll also consider participating with the project by telling us your story. You know, Brian, we're really, really grateful for the more than it's now 160 people who have recorded a story, a musical memory for our Arizona Musical Memory Archive. This is all allowing us to better understand the ways that people value music in their lives. So, listeners, if you haven't yet visited our website, you can do so at musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. There, at the website, you'll find full-length interviews of all the ones we've posted here. You can also submit a musical memory of your own by a sound file, by through an essay, a poem. You could provide an illustration, or you can suggest someone you know who'd like to share their musical memories with us, please take a look at musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Dan Cruz. That's Lifetimes of Listening. Thanks for listening. The executive producer of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast, is Brian Moon. The program is produced and edited by Dan Cruz. The Lifetimes of Listening website was created by Cynthia Barlow, Principal Information Technology Manager with the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. Music is from zapsplat.com and from pixabay.com. Special thanks to the Fred Fox School of Music for hosting our website and UA Marketing and Communications for helping us launch this project, the archive, and this podcast series. For more information and to get involved in our research, visit musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast. <laughs>